welcome everybody in the room, tuning in at all of our locations, everybody that's here. And I want to welcome a handful or a few of our Ports Live locations out of the 12 Ports North Houston, Ports Houston, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Austin, Texas, and all the locations and everybody online. We are wrapping up this series on scandals, where we have been looking at sinners that led to the Savior, the men and women who made up the family tree of Jesus. And tonight, we're going to look at the setup upon which the Savior arrived into the world. And Matthew's account, which really comes right after he walks through, hey, this is the family of Jesus, and this is the birth of Jesus. And so in order to do that, let me start with a story that will give us a little bit of tracks for where we're going. In 2015, my wife and I found out we were pregnant with our first child, our son. His name is Crew. We're stoked. And at that time, we were living in a, in a rental property, and we were trying to figure out, hey, is this going to be where we end up, you know, making a home and the baby nursery, or are we going to buy a house? Because we'd been in the market looking for a house, and we had looked and looked and hadn't been successful. My wife was six months pregnant, and somebody lists online a foreclosure property that was so bad, no one could possibly have lived inside of it. I mean, we'd assume there were dead bodies in the wall or something. But it was one of those scenarios, like I've talked about before, where you want to look for the house that nobody else wants. And so I was like, babe, I got our house. We go and see it. She's like, this looks like there's dead bodies in the wall or something. And we ended up buying the house and beginning to renovate it. Now, the problem was we started renovations and it needed a lot of renovations. Like it was not livable. There wasn't electricity. It was not a livable place. And we started renovating it October 1st. And we had a baby coming December 19th. Now, I don't know if you can do math, but that's not a lot of time. I don't know. Math's not my strong suit, so maybe you're right there with me. But that was two months of time that we had, and we had to do an entire renovation. And so the contractors, and they're working through it, and they're working on it. And it gets to the point where we're like, man, I think we're going to get there. And a month goes by, and they made a lot of progress, but there's like still no drywall on the walls, and the floors weren't done. And another week goes by, and another week goes by. And come to find out, we had a week left. It was December 8th, and we had essentially another 11 days until our son was supposed to be born on December 19th. And they were supposed to finish on December 12th. And so it was like, man, this is going to be perfect, dude. I'm, I'm dad of the year, husband of the year. I just got you a house, mom. And my wife calls me. And it's December 8th, and we're setting up for the Porch Christmas concert in 2015. And she says, you need to come home right now because the doctor said, I'm having an emergency C-section because the baby is basically, his head was too enormous and he needed to get out of there. <laughs> True story. And I go home and the next morning we go in, we have a C-section, have our son. Here's a picture of crew from that time. Happy as can be. I know, man, smiling. He's like three hours old at this point. He's just loving life. And it was awesome. And we spent the next three days at the hospital because that's what you do after you have a baby. And if you play out the math, remember, the house was supposed to be done on December 12th. And we were in the hospital on December 9th. And so our expectation of we're going to finish it, we're going to set up the nursery, I would like promise, we're going to have tons of time. We'll set the nursery up. It'll all be great. None of that happened. And we leave the hospital and go to an entirely empty house with all of our furniture inside of the garage and try to set up a crib and try to set up, just throw a mattress on the ground. And we go in and everything that I had hoped and expected and wanted for kind of this setup of our child entering didn't go to plan. Now, what does that have to do with tonight? Well, we're going to look at the story in the entrance of Jesus, and you may be somewhat familiar with it. 
But it is certainly, without, goes without saying, a scenario where the birth of a child did not go to plan. Certainly to the plans of the mother and father in that scenario. And I want to walk through the scandals that made up the arrival of the Savior of the world. Because you may have heard the Christmas story, you're familiar with it, but when you look at the account that Matthew gives us, unique from the account that Luke gives us, Luke gives us the account that you probably heard and Charlie Brown reads every single year on TV and you, you know, it has the nativity of there were angels in the field that day and behold, a great light came up and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Matthew's account is full of scandal after scandal from an unplanned pregnancy to an attempted breaking off engagement to a genocide, to these foreign mystics showing up, random strangers, and Matthew shows us the scandals that led to the Savior of the world. And more importantly, in looking at these scandals, we learn something about God and how we are to come to him, and we learn something about how God has come to every person here. And finally, we see that God is at work despite what you see. So I want to walk through, and I'm going to trace these three scandals, and each has a truth that corresponds with it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can flip right there. If not, it'll be up on the screens. We're going to look at the setup that led to the Savior of the world, Jesus being born. Matthew verse 18. This is right after we finished last week. And remember, in scandals, we went through Judah and Tamar, and Matthew goes out of his way to be like, look at all these crazy people in Jesus' family tree, like Judah and Tamar, where he basically slept with his daughter-in-law. And not only that, Jesus was related to Rahab. Remember Rahab? Grandma Rahab, yeah, the prostitute. And he walks through and goes through, and then David and Bathsheba and adultery. And he's traced all these scandals, and then he goes into the scandals surrounding the birth of Jesus and what we learn about him. So this comes in verse 18, right after he finished the lineage and genealogy, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was engaged or pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, at that time to be engaged basically meant in order to break off an engagement, you had to do something legally to break down that engagement. He was a faithful man to the law, and he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind that he would divorce her quietly. Now, you've heard this story before, and you kind of know how it ends, but I want you to think about what Joseph and Mary felt in that moment. You got this happy, engaged couple. Things are going great. They're planning the wedding, picking out invitations. She's picking out a dress. All the different things that you'd be excited about getting married in that day. And one day she realizes, I'm pregnant. And she shows up at Joe's house and says... <laughs> Crazy story, okay? Um, so I'm pregnant, and uh, God is the father. And to us, you're familiar with it, but think about all the emotions that you, th I mean, what would you think? JD's engaged right now. They're weeks away from getting married. If Jenna, his fiance, showed up and she was like, hey, just got this is gonna sound crazy, um, but I'm having a baby. And uh, no, it's not anybody else's baby, uh, it's God's baby. What would you respond with? And so, of course, Joseph is going, Man, this girl's not just pregnant, she's crazy. And so I'm not <laughs> going to end up marrying crazy until that night an angel shows up and says this. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You're going to have a baby that will be the savior of your people. All of this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive, and he quotes an Old Testament prophet, and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. It was to be born of a virgin. The Jewish people at the time were looking for a savior, or someone that was going to be born of a virgin. Not exactly the story of any person. And so this was part of the sign that would be there. Larry King was a famous interviewer, worked for CNN, and did as many interviews probably as anyone who's ever lived has done. Oprah may give him a run for his money. But he was asked, if you could interview anybody, who would you want to interview? And he very quickly said, Jesus Christ, and I would have one question. Were you really born of a virgin? That's kind of funny on the surface, because for me, it'd be like, man, that's the one that you're going to get hung up on? But Larry King was Jewish, and he knew that Jesus and the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And all this takes place, and then it says in verse 24, when Matthew woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to his son. And he gave him the name Jesus. That is not how anybody sees their wedding night going. Did you see that? He takes her home, marries her, and it says that they don't sleep together, even though he's his wife, until after the birth of his son. What do you do on the wedding night? You know, if you're not, it's like board games? You're playing Scrabble? What are you doing? <laughs> All these different turns and a scandal that Jesus and Joseph and Mary would carry for the rest of their life. I mean, you're, you're growing up in a small town where everybody knows, and oh, you're the kid whose mom was pregnant by God, Right? And yet that's exactly what God was up to. And through the unplanned pregnancy, which was actually the most planned pregnancy of all time, God would bring forward into the world a savior to save his people from something very specific, their sins. He was sent on a mission to deliver them not from Rome or from a political empire or from some army somewhere. He will deliver his people from their sins. The first thing that we see about God is very simply, God sent the Savior. He didn't send a list of rules. He didn't send a sermon. He didn't send a new religion. He didn't send a bunch of advice. He sent someone to save you and me. Because nothing else other than sending someone to save them from their sins would accomplish anything. There's no amount of rules, no amount of religion, there's no amount of philosophy or no amount of advice that somebody can give you to provide the biggest solution for the biggest problem that you have, which is sin. And the fact that you and I have sinned against a perfect God through our actions, through our thoughts, through our lives in general, and God didn't send his son into the world so that you could try harder or to be a motivational speaker. He sent it to be a savior from your sins and my sins, the first idea that God sent a savior into the world. The name Yeshua, or the name he's to call is Jesus. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. It's a word that was, is translated Joshua most closely in English. Joshua was the person who saved the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so Joseph is hearing this, and he's told by an angel, and that baby 
will be the savior of your people. And you're to call him Yeshua. And my guess is Joseph thought, of course, you know, he's going to show up and this will be the Messiah, the military leader. He's going to save them from their sins. Joshua, or I'm sorry, Joseph wouldn't have been thinking, you know what we need right now? We need a solution for our sins. He would have thought, we have a solution for our sins. It's two miles up the road. It's called a temple. You go in there and when you sin, you sacrifice a goat or you sacrifice a lamb. But God knew all of that sacrificial system was always pointing to a savior. And that unplanned pregnancy and scandal that Joseph was experiencing had been planned from the beginning of the world because God was sending a savior. Now part of the challenge of accepting a savior and being willing to accept someone helping save you is you have to believe and understand that you actually need rescuing. If not, you're not gonna have any openness or willingness or desire to be saved from something. What do I mean by that? The other day, or about a month ago, my wife was driving along the road and somebody pulled up next to her in the car. She's with our two kids. And the person next to her in the car is screaming at her and waving her hands and saying something at her. And when you're driving along the road and somebody's doing that, you just think, man, this is a crazy person or there's road rage going on or what is happening right now. And the person is flagging her down and flagging her down and she's just like, all right, kids, we're gonna keep moving, keep moving. And he keeps waving at her, waving at her, waving at her. And then smoke starts coming out of her engine she can see in the front. And very quickly, her car begins to break down. The person that was waving at her wasn't waving like, ah, ah, trying to get her. He was saying, your car is smoking. It's smoking. I can see the smoke from back here. You can't see it from where you are, but your car is smoking. And in a moment, what went from her thinking, this person is here to hurt me, became, this person is here to help me because she recognized I have a problem. Perhaps one of the biggest barriers to people coming to faith is not actually believing that you have a problem that you need a savior. Because until you get to the place where you go, man, I, I am not, I can attempt to try to be a better person. I can attempt to try to work, earn my way to God, but I will never be good enough if there's a perfect God to live as he would want me to. I can't save myself that you're receptive and open to. Oh, I've got a problem. I need help. Versus, oh man, this is, I don't have a problem and anybody telling me I need to change, they're just trying to harm me. But Jesus was sent and Joseph began to realize and Mary began to realize to be a savior for you, me, and for all people from our sin. And then we're told after this, about a year later, a year to a year and a half later, Matthew chapter two, verse one, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi, and you may have wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So this translation for east would have been around the area of Iran, or modern-day Iran today. And these magi, which is a word that's kind of connected to magicians or mystics, and they were astrologers, that they were looking at the stars. These men that were coming from the Middle East traveled, and they saw this star, and they came in town and they said, hey, we're trying to find the child that was born because we want to worship him. And word begins to break out. Now, when you think about the wise men, here's the problem with the wise men. There was a song in the 1800s or, or late 1800s that basically ruined how we think about the wise men because it was, we three kings of Orion are 
uh, whatever the rest of the song goes. And it makes us think there were three kings. One, they weren't kings, and one, there wasn't three of them. There's no reference to three. There's three gifts that they bring. But it was likely a caravan of people that had traveled from the Middle East. And they show up, and they're in the city of Jerusalem. And they go, hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? When Herod, or King Herod, heard this, he was disturbed or furious, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, why? King Herod was the king of this city of Jerusalem and really the area. Think governor of that area. But he had a title that was king of the Jews. And so this would be him showing up and somebody going into, you know, UT Austin and saying, hey, I'm looking for the one who was born governor of Texas. And Governor Abbott being like, what do you mean the one who was, uh, he's right here. I'm sitting in the Capitol building. That's what's happening with Herod. And Herod, the reason all of Jerusalem was disturbed is Herod was crazy. By crazy, I mean crazy. He was paranoid. He thought constantly people were trying to take the throne from him. He was brutal and uh, violent. He had 10 sons. Two of them, he thought, were going to attempt to take the throne from him. So he killed two of his sons. He killed one of his wives because he thought she was going to scheme with the other children to take his throne. He was so violent that he, when he was making preparations for when he was going to die, he ordered that chief officials from the highest level of government all over the city of Jerusalem, the day that Herod died, they were to be put to death because he knew when I die, no one's going to cry. So I want there to be mourning in the streets of Jerusalem. So I want you to kill all of them too. I mean, he's just a vicious, brutal guy. So when Herod is upset that, hey, there's somebody else claiming to be king, all of Jerusalem was in danger. Then Herod called the Magi, or the wise men, secretly, and he found out from them exactly this time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may go to and murder him, no, and worship him. You know, that's what he's thinking. So they go off. So Herod goes, he's like, oh, yeah, they're in Bethlehem. Go see, find them in Bethlehem. And when you do, um, you know, I'd love to see them too and come celebrate and, and bring a housewarming gift. And so come back and let me know. And it says this, the wise men, on coming to the house of Mary and Joseph, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now, Jesus is, at this point, he's a toddler. He's barely able to walk. And this little child they see, and something is so remarkable, they show up and they worship him. They opened their treasures to him and presented him with three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Come back to that in a second. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So these three are these group of men that are basically stargazers and mystics and seekers are watching stars one day out in the Middle East or somewhere in Iran. They see a star and they feel called by God to go follow that star. They show up and they find the savior of the world, a man that they had never had any interest in looking and searching for and had no idea and understanding of. And yet the star shows up and God leads and calls them to go find him. The other scandal we see here is that God takes these mystics, these people who should have been the farthest from the first visitors that show up at Mary and Joseph's house. I mean, think about that. There's a knock at the door, and all of a sudden, a caravan of people from another nation just show up, and they're like, hey, we're here. We saw the star. We'd love to see your toddler. How creepy is that? And that's exactly what's going on. And yet God was doing something. God, the second idea we see from this story, is seeking all people 
God is seeking everybody. Like, I want you to think about something before. You've heard the three wise men before. Your mom has it on the nativity set, on the fireplace. Why is that story included in the Bible? One, because it happened. Why would God have that story happen? These people, they weren't Jewish. They weren't of a Christian faith. They were just people that were out watching stargazing in the middle of the desert, and God calls them. I mean, they were seeking that star, but more than that, God was seeking them. He put the star. He moved them to go follow it. Because God is a God who seeks all people. The message and the reason it's included inside of this is because Matthew knew what so many Jewish people at the time they were reading and today still believe, that God is just a God for the Jewish people, that he really cares about the Jews. And Matthew's right. No, he's, his heart is for all people. God's heart is for all people. Red, yellow, black, white, every race, every nation, every time. God's heart is for all people. In other words, the belief in Matthew's day was that God really, he really loved the Jewish people. Everybody else, he's kind of like, yeah, you guys are okay, but I really love the Jewish people. Give me a J, give me an E, give me a W. That's what I'm all about. And Matthew says, no, God's heart is for everyone. It always has been. And at the birth or the toddler phase of Jesus' life, God takes these men who spoke different languages with different backgrounds from a different nationality, and he said, go see them. Go see the one you were made for. And they fall on their face, and they worship him. Wherever you're at in the room right now, God is seeking a relationship with you. You're not too far gone. Your past, your present, your future doesn't keep him from wanting you. Even if you can't see it or you don't believe it, you're not even sure that he's there. My daughter is three and we play hide and seek and she's at that stage of life when you play hide and seek where it's really not that hard to find her because she'll go hide and she'll just stand like in the middle of like the living room, like behind a, you know, ornament and... She does something that's, that's kind of funny, and of course, you, you've been around kids, you've seen kids do this, where they will cover their eyes, and they'll be standing in just plain sight, and you're, you're hiding, or they're hiding, and they're just covering their eyes, and you have to intentionally not look for them, or intentionally walk around like, oh, where could she be? I can't see her. Is she over here underneath the mat? Is she, because she thinks, if I can't see him. He's not there. If I can't see him, he's not there. And he can't see me. It's funny when you're three, but a lot of people live their entire life that way. They think, man, if I can't see God, he's not there. And when it's a three-year-old, we can say, oh, that's so silly. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean that he's not there. What if God, even if you can't fully, entirely completely always see him, what he's doing, his presence, doesn't mean that he's not there. Because the Bible would say he has been seeking in every breath. Even the fact that you're in a church on a Tuesday night is God seeking, not these people, you, every person in the room, every person you've ever met, God is seeking to have a relationship with. When you're at the bar and you are so wasted you cannot walk, God is seeking you. He's not giving up on you. When you find yourself in that place where you're deciding, man, I don't know if, if I can leave and walk out of this house right now because of the one night stand shame that I have. He's seeking you. He's never stopped. He never will stop. He, from the moment you took your first breath to the moment you take your last, has been wanting a relationship with you. And he was sought after those men just like he's seeking after you. 
Because our God seeks every person. These men were in Iran. You know what's interesting? Just a quick side note. Iran is a predominantly Islamic nation. And Iran is a place in many Islamic countries in the world today where you can literally lose your life or be severely outcasted from society for converting away from Islam, from becoming a Christian. And yet God continues to seek, and an awakening is happening in Islamic territories and countries where people are coming to Jesus. And you want to know what one of the most common ways they're doing it? Through dreams. Studies estimate that one in three Muslim background Christians come to faith through dreams. A man, and the stories are crazy. There's a book by Tom Doyle named Dreams and Visions, who's a missionary in ministry, runs a ministry in the Middle East. The stories are eerily, eerily similar. Where they say, and they use the word Isa, is the translation of the word that they use for Jesus. I was sleeping, and a, a man woke me up, and it was Isa, it was Jesus. And he said, I made you, I died for you. You were made to know me. And they take the step and they trust in Jesus. One in three. I don't know about you. There's not a lot of times and a lot of people that I interact with where I hear one in a hundred come to faith through dreams. For it to be one in three is staggering. But it tells us the same God who sought the wise men is still seeking today, he's still seeking you, and he still seeks in nations and places where they can't talk about Jesus or the scriptures are not tolerated because our God seeks every person. Really quickly, finally, they bring these three gifts that even those were symbolic. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, probably the easiest, clearest, is a sign of royalty or for a king. And they're opening these gifts up and they're handing them to Mary. And my guess is she sees the gold and she's like, money! I've probably never even seen gold before. And so all of a sudden, they've got this gold she stores away, and then frankincense. Frankincense is, is not really something that people give a lot of today, but it, it's connected to incense. It represents priest or being a priest. What's a priest? Jesus is called the high priest. A priest intercedes or goes to God on behalf of his people. That Jesus goes to God, and it represents that Jesus would be the high priest. He would be the king, gold. He would be the high priest for his people. And then myrrh. Now, myrrh is probably the weirdest of all of them, and it certainly would have been weird to marry because what was myrrh used for? My guess is you don't have a lot of myrrh sitting around your house. But myrrh was used for embalming the dead. In other words, when somebody would die, it would be, their body would be preserved through putting myrrh over it to help provide for burial. And Mary's opening it up. You've got to think, what's going through her head if she's going, oh, man, gold. That's now he's going to college, okay, and Frank and friend, we'll burn some of that later. It'll smell real good, like candle and an embalming fluid. This is the king or the epitome of one of those gifts where somebody gives it to you, and you're like, oh, oh, this is so nice, this sweater that I will be giving to goodwill. And you've got to think that's going on, but why would they give that to him? Because they knew this child, unlike every other child who's ever lived, was born to die. And he was born to be the savior of the world through death. And they show up and they give. I mean, this would be akin to giving an urn for ashes someday. 
And they gave it at the birth of Jesus. Because though he was sleeping in a crib, one day he would go to a cross. For every person in this room, listening online, and every person that's ever lived. And the wise men knew. Finally, so we see that God is seeking after all people. God sent a savior. Then we see perhaps the craziest of the whole story. It says this. They leave, so imagine I leave and head off, and they go back to their country. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt. This is what I mean by it's so much more scandalous in Matthew's gospel than in Luke. Where Luke talks about the angels and they show up and they worship and glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And in Matthew, an angel shows up and is like, everybody move out of the house, out of the house, out of the house, head to Egypt. And in the middle of the night, they take off to Egypt. And another scandal where they would be refugees for the next few years. Living, running, fleeing from people who wanted to take their life. When Herod realized, verse 16, that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity or the surrounding area who were two years old and under in accordance with what he had learned from the Magi. So Herod says, if they're not gonna come back and tell me, I'll get rid of the problem myself and I will kill every boy under or two years old and under inside of the town. Think about Mary, who would have known this, who every child that Jesus, because, you know, new moms, like, they, they haven't changed in 2,000 years. you got a baby, moms, they just kind of flock together. And so she would have known other moms of other one and one and a half year olds that lived and were around Jesus, whose baby was killed because Herod thought, you know what, I'm just going to kill every child there. And through death, I'm going to put an end to Christmas. And was unaware that God had a plan the entire time to send a child and through Christmas put an end to death. And he told the child, or he told Joseph, take Mary and your family and escape. But Herod was threatened. I mean, Herod, why would Herod do this? Because Herod, as I've said before, he was paranoid of somebody taking the throne from him. He was terrified that somebody, I have a kingdom and I will protect it at all costs. Even if I have to kill a bunch of toddlers, I will do it. Because he didn't want anything that could possibly threaten him and his kingdom. The irony and the sad thing is that Herod didn't understand that Jesus showed up and he wasn't just a gift for you know, Jewish people are just a gift for certain people. He was to be a savior for all people, including Herod. In Luke chapter 2, when the angels do show up, they say this. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid. I give you good news, talking about the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. This will cause great joy for all the people. This is a good gift for all people everywhere. Herod, this isn't something that's a threat. This is a gift, the savior of the world. But Herod thought, man, this thing, I see Jesus as a threat to my life, not as a gift to my life. What's funny is this still happens all the time, where people think God, who's here to give good and bring good about, and they see him as, man, I, 
I don't know that I want to let you in all of my life. It's like this. My daughter, like I said, it's just something with kids when they're young, and um, she's at that stage, which I think she was two in this picture I'm about to show you, where we'll go see Santa, and when we go see Santa, uh, kids do what they do when they're like three and under, and they just freak out. It kind of makes sense. They've never seen like white hair before. They're like, what happened to this guy? And he's wearing a red robe, and that just is creepy to me. And so we'll go see Santa, and it just comes with the territory. This happened with all of our kids. Where she's sitting on Santa's lap, and she's, <laughs> this is like the calm state. This is like, all right, quick, take the picture. And she's just panicking. Because she can't, she's terrified, and she doesn't understand. Oh, no, 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 no. Santa is, Santa's a nice man. He's going to give you gifts. Santa's a good, sit on his knee. It's okay. It's going to be okay. He wants to give good things to you. She just sees him as a terrifying, I don't even know what a two-year-old thinks of a person that close, and wants to be away from him. It's funny that Herod had a similar posture towards Jesus, towards God. And I don't see him as something that's going to bring good in my life. He's a threat. But Herod's not alone. There's a lot of people in the room that they see it that way. I mean, some of us spend years and years of our life where you see God as a threat to you. You see him not as like, he, he's here to good, give good things. He's here to bring good things into your life. You see him as a threat that, oh, man, he's, I don't want him too close. If he gets too close, man, I don't want to have God. He's a threat. Like if I go all in with Jesus, it's going to threaten how I want to live. It means I'm going to have to stop just partying all the time. Or it means I'm going to have to change the way that I dress. Or it means I'm going to have to actually break up with this person because God's going to come in and be like, no, that's not okay. Or it means I'm going to have to stop having sex or one-night stands or sleeping around or doing what I want to do with my life. And so not right now. I'll get serious about God someday when I'm in my 30s, when I want to settle down and I want to raise kids in the church. But right now I want to live my life. These are my 20s. And it's because you see God as a threat. Not as a gift. Not as one who wants to bring good in your life. Who you can trust. And the Son of God, the Savior of the world, showed up. And he was five miles away. In the home of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, five miles away from Herod. And he missed him because he saw it. It's a threat. And if you have bought the idea that God is here to steal, take, rob, keep from, you, like Herod, have bought a lie. And like a two-year-old, you're trying to explain, no, Santa is, he gives good things. God, he gives good things. He wants to bring good things. Any part of you that goes, oh, I don't know if I want him that close, has bought a, a lie about God, who he is, his love, even what he just wants in your life. Like any good parent, he wants good things. Herod claimed that he wanted to worship Jesus. So with the Magi, hey, you guys worship him, I want to worship him too. But those are just words. It were lift service. He didn't really want to worship him. He didn't have a genuine, real faith. I was thinking about Christmas and Christmas trees, and got these two trees that are up here, and they're really similar. Same tree skirt, same decorations, but there's one key difference. This one is real, as in it was actually a tree that was cut down. It's got life that is inside of it. There's water in the bottom watering it. 
because there's life that's inside of it. And this one is fake. It may look similar, it may look like it's real, but it's fake. There's nothing tree, actual tree about it. There's no wood that makes it up. It's made in a factory somewhere. Even though it looks similar on the outside and it's decorated in a similar way and they've got a lot of similarities, there's a huge difference. One is real and one is fake. And I don't want you to live another day of your life, if you're in the room, with a fake faith. There's no actual life inside of you and you, your life looks pretty pretty. You got a good car, you got a good job. People look at you and they think you're a nice guy, a nice girl, but you've never actually trusted in Jesus. You could say the words, you may know some Bible verses. You grew up in Catholic school, you grew up in church and you know the stories, but you don't actually believe it. In fact, you're at that place where like Herod, you're like, I don't want God, not yet. I don't want to change. I don't want him in my life. Or you're at a place where you think you can earn your way to God by how you behave, or you can't have a relationship with God because of what you have done. All of those, fake faith. True faith has life inside of it. How does life come to live inside of someone? It comes by the moment where they say, Jesus, you on the cross, you died for everything I've ever done. You came not to be the provider of a second chance. You came to be the savior of my sin and you gave your life for me. And I believe that. And you rose from the dead and the payment went through. You were more than enough. And I will stand before God and I will live with him forever. Not because of how good I am, because of what you did for me. You're my savior. And that's a real faith. Tragedy is Herod's kingdom, it came to an end. He was fighting the inevitable. In fact, the very next verse, it says, and Herod died. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill him have died. The third idea from the text that we see is that God sacrificed his son. Herod goes in and sacrifices all of these children. Ironically, God's plan would later, and Herod did so, he put to death human life to protect his kingdom. God allowed Jesus to have death take his life to protect you and the world because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes and accepts the scandalous payment of the life of God will not perish but have eternal life. One thing, and I'll close here, it's ironic, as we just conclude, our God sent the Savior, our God is seeking all people, and our God saves by sacrificing and by sacrificing his son. In this season, we gather together and we have gifts in, in your house or maybe uh, in your family's house, you'll get a tree. And underneath the tree, we'll put Christmas gifts, and most people put Christmas gifts that are on there. And, you know, when you look at those gifts, you'll try to evaluate, I wonder what could be in that one. But you know what some of the most valuable gifts that come in my house, and often are, that are represented in my house, they sit on a tree. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you'll get like an envelope, or grandma will sit, people who are like, no, I'm not mailing gifts, here's some cash. And they'll put a check, or they'll put something in an envelope, or maybe it's a little box and it's like a wedding ring or something of great value. It may not be as big as the things underneath, but the most valuable things often are the ones that hang on a tree. And it's so fitting 
in a season, and ironic, honestly, where all over the country and all over the world, people will get trees and they will hang things on it to celebrate the birth of the one who came, to hang on a tree for them. And just like the most valuable gifts, at least in my house, are often the ones hanging on a tree, the most valuable gift God could ever give was the life of Jesus, who hung not on a Christmas tree, but hung on a tree on a hill called Calvary for you and for me and for every person who's ever lived and to pay for their sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we may die to sin, live to righteousness by his wounds, You have been healed. The scandal of Christmas is that God, rich in love and mercy, would give the most valuable gift imaginable and hang it on a tree for you and for me. And if you've never had a moment where you accepted that, God is extending the greatest gift you will ever receive in your life, but he will not force you to accept it. You have to decide, I believe that, I receive that. You died for me. And tonight is your night, if you haven't. And when you do all of heaven, we're told, erupts in joy. Because one who was made for God has stepped into the relationship with him through Christ by believing and accepting it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the scandal of the cross. I pray for anyone in this room who has bought the lie that you are a threat there to take from them rather than bring them life. You would pierce and break through with the truth. You're a good, loving, perfect Father. I pray for anyone who's never accepted that free gift that tonight you would allow their heart right now where they are to have it pressed on them by you and they would accept by grace through faith what you have done on their behalf thank you that you lived the life we couldn't and you died the death for us you are the one who saves us from our sins and we worship you now in song amen